0: 6. CK is fully a half inch wide to allow for the swelling of the wood when the boat is launched. The best oar locks are fastened to the oars and fit in the sockets with a long pin. This arrangement permits one to fish alone, and if trolling do drop the oars quickly and take up the rod without danger of losing them. A landing net should be a part of every fishing outfit. More fish are lost just as they are about to be lifted from the water than at any other time. A gaff is used for the same purpose with fish too large to go into a landing net. A gaff is a large hook without a barb fastened into a short pole. If you have no net or gaff and have succeeded in bringing a large fish up alongside the boat, try to reach under him and get a firm grip in his gills before you lift him on board. If it is a pickerel, look out for his needle-like teeth. The best time to fish is either in the early morning or just before sundown. During the heated part of the day most game fish stop feeding and seek the cool, deep places in the lake or river. In many states, fishing is prohibited by law until after the fish are through the spawning season. In all kinds of fishing, the rule is to keep as quiet as possible. Talking does not make so much difference. But any sudden noises in the water or on the bottom of the boat are especially likely to frighten the fish. Never fish in your own shadow or that of your boat. Try to have the sun in front of you or at your side. Never be in a hurry to land a big fish. Remember that some of the so-called, big game fish, of the ocean will take all day to a land. You must use skill to tire your fish out or by keeping his gills open to drown him. The rod and line are not intended as a lever to force the fish to the landing net but merely as a guide to lead him about and by his struggles to force him to become exhausted. A very interesting experiment has demonstrated that a skillful fisherman can with a fly rod and light line in a very short time tire out a strong swimmer to which the line has been attached and force him to give up the struggle and come to the side of a boat. Methods of fishing differ so much in different localities that aside from the ordinary equipment of rods, reels, lines, leaders, and hooks, the fisherman going to a new locality had better first ascertain what the general methods of fishing are, or else, If possible, secure his equipment after he reaches his fishing grounds. The III Nature Study What is a true naturalist? How to start a collection Moth collecting the herbarium There is nothing in the world that will bring more pleasure into the life of a boy or girl than to cultivate a love for nature. It is one of the joys of life that is as free as the air we breathe. A nature student need never be lonely or at a loss for friends or companions. The birds and the bugs are his acquaintances. Whenever he goes afield there is something new or interesting to see and to observe. He finds, tongues in trees, books in the running brooks, sermons in stones and good in everything. To a love nature and her mysteries does not necessarily mean to be some kind of a queer creature running around with a butterfly net or an insect box. A true naturalist is simply a man or a boy who keeps his eyes and ears open. He will soon find that nature is ready to tell him many secrets. After a time, the smell of the woods, The chirp of a cricket and the rustling of the wind in the pines become his pleasures. The reason that people do not as a rule know more about nature is simply because their minds are too full of other things. They fail to cultivate the power of accurate observation, which is the most important thing of all. A practical start in nature study is to go out some dewy morning and study the first spider web you come across. Noting how wonderfully this little creature makes a net to catch its food just as we make nets to catch fish. How the web is braced with tiny guy ropes to keep the wind from blowing it away in a way similar to the method an engineer would use in securing a derrick or a tall chimney. When a fly or bug happens to become entangled in its meshes, the spider will dart out quickly from its hiding place and if the fly is making a violent struggle for life will soon spin a ribbon-like web around it which will hold it secure. Just as we might attempt to secure a prisoner or wild animal that was trying to make its escape by binding it with ropes. A spider makes a very interesting pet and the surest way to overcome the fear that many people had of spiders is to know more about them. There is no need to read big books or listen to dry lectures to study nature. In any square foot that you may pick out at random in your lawn you will find something interesting if you will look for it. Some tiny bug will be crawling around in its little world, not aimlessly but with some definite purpose in view. To this insect the blades of grass are almost like mighty trees and the imprint of your heel in the ground may seem like a valley between mountains. To get an adequate idea of the myriads of insects that people the fields, we should select a summer day just as the sun is about to set. The reflection of its waning rays on their wings will show countless thousands of flying creatures in places where, if we did not take the trouble to observe, we might think there were none. There is one very important side to nature that must not be overlooked. It consists in knowing that we shall find a thousand things that we cannot explain to a one that we fully understand. Education of any kind consists more in knowing when to say, I don't know and no one else knows either, than to attempt a foolish explanation of an unexplainable thing. If you ask, why a cat has whiskers? Or why and how they make a purring noise when they are pleased and wag their tails when they are angry? While a dog wags his to show pleasure? The wisest man cannot answer your question. A teacher once asked a boy about a cat's whiskers and he said they were to keep her from trying to get her body through a hole that would not admit her head without touching her whiskers. No one can explain satisfactorily why the sap runs up in a tree and by some chemical process carries from the earth the right elements to make leaves, blossoms or fruit. Nature study is not why, it is how. We all learn in everyday life how a hen will take care of a brood of chicks or how a bee will go from blossom to blossom to sip honey. Would it not also be interesting to see how a little bug the size of a pinhead will burrow into the stem of an oak leaf and how the tree will grow a house around him that will be totally unlike the rest of the branches or leaves. That is an oak gall. If you carefully cut a green one open you will find the bug in the center or in the case of a dried one that we often find on the ground. We can see the tiny hole where he has crawled out. Did you ever know that some kinds of ants will wage war on other kinds and make slaves of the prisoners just as our ancestors did in the olden times with human beings? Did you ever see a playground where the ants had their recreation just as we have ball fields and dancing halls? Did you ever hear of a colony of ants keeping a cow? It is a well known fact that they do. And they will take their cow out to pasture and bring it in and milk it and then lock it up for the night just as you might do if you were a farm boy. The ant cow is a species of insect called aphes that secretes from its food a sweet kind of fluid called honeydew. The 10,000 things that we can learn in nature could no more be covered in a chapter in this book than the same space could cover a history of the world. I have two large books devoted to the discussion of a single kind of flower, the orchid. It is estimated that there are about 200,000 kinds of flowers. So for this subject alone, we should need a bookshelf over a mile long. This is not stated to discourage anyone for of course no one can learn all there is to know about any subject. Most people are content not to learn anything or even see anything that is not a part of their daily life. The only kind of nature study worthwhile is systematic. It is not safe to trust too much to the memory. Keep a diary and record in it even the most simple things for future reference. All sorts of items can be written in such a book, as it is your own personal affair. You need not try to make it a work of literary merit. Have entries such as these, first frost October 3rd first snow 3 inches Thanksgiving Day skating December 3rd weather clear and bright on Candlemas Day, February 2nd and therefore groundhog saw his shadow heard crows calling, February 18th. Last year January 26th saw first robin March 14th last snow April 28th there is scarcely anything in nature that is not interesting and in some way full. Perhaps you will say, how about a bat? As a matter of fact a bat is one of our best friends because he will spend the whole night catching mosquitoes. But someone will say, he flies into your hair and is covered with a certain kind of disgusting vermin. Did you ever know of a bat flying into anyone's hair? And as for the vermin science tells us that they are really his favorite food so it is unlikely that he would harbor a colony of them very long. The subject of snakes is one in which there is more misinformation than any other common thing. There are only three venomous kinds of snakes in America. They are the rattlesnake, copperhead, and moccasin. All of them can be distinguished by a deep pit behind the eye, which gives them the name of pit vipers. The, the general impression that puff adders, pilots, green snakes, or water snakes are poisonous is absolutely wrong. And as for hoop snakes and the snake with a sting in his tail that all boys had heard about, they are absolutely fairy tales like Jack and the Beanstalk or Alice in Wonderland. We had all heard about black snakes eight or ten feet long that will chase you and wind themselves around your neck. But of the many hundreds of black snakes that a well-known naturalist has seen he states that he never saw one that did not do its best to escape if given half a chance. Why so much misinformation about snakes exists is a mystery. Nature study has recently been introduced into schools and it is a very excellent way to have the interesting things point out to us until our eyes are trained to see for ourselves. The usual methods of nature study may be roughly divided into, 1. Keeping pets, 2. Bird study, 3. Insect study, 4. Systematic study of flowers and plants, 5. Wild animal life. The basis of nature study consists in making collections. A collection that we have made for ourselves of moths or flowers, for instance, is far more interesting than a stamp or coin collection where we buy our specimens. If we go afield and collect for ourselves, The cost is practically nothing and we have the benefit of being in the air and sunshine. One kind of collecting is absolutely wrong that of birds' eggs, nests or even the birds themselves. Our little feathered songsters are too few now and most states have very severe penalties for killing or molesting them. A nature student must not be a lawbreaker. The outfit for a butterfly or moth collection is very simple and inexpensive. We shall need an insect net to capture our specimens. This can be made at home from a piece of stiff wire bent into the shape of a flattened circle about a foot across. Fasten the ring securely to a broom handle and make a cheesecloth net the same diameter as the ring and about two feet deep. It is very cruel to run a pin through insects and to allow them slowly to torture to death. An insect killer that is generally used is called the cyanide ball. Its principal ingredient, cyanide of potassium is a harmless looking white powder but it is the most deadly poison in the world. Unless a boy or girl knows fully its terrible danger, they should never touch it or even breathe its fumes. One of your parents or the druggist should prepare the cyanide bottle for you and as long as you do not look into the bottle to watch the struggles of a dying bug or in any way get any of the contents of the bottle on your fingers, you are safe. Take a wide-mouthed bottle made of clear glass and fit a cork or rubber stopper to it. Then wash the bottle thoroughly and dry it, finally polishing the inside with a piece of soft cloth or tissue paper. Place 1 ounce of cyanide of potassium into the bottle and pour in enough dry sawdust to cover the lumps of poison. Then wet some plaster of Paris until it is the consistency of thick cream and quickly pour it over the sawdust, taking care that it does not run down the sides or splash against the bottle. Place the bottle on a level table and very soon the plaster of Paris will set and harden into a solid cake. Sufficient fumes from the cyanide will come up through the plaster to poison the air in the bottle and to kill any living thing that attempts to breathe it. As you capture your specimens of moths, bugs or butterflies afield you place them into the bottle. And as soon as they are dead, you remove them, fold them carefully in stiff paper and store them in a paper box or a carrying case until you get home. They should then be mounted on boards or cork sheets, labeled carefully with the name of the specimen, date and place of capture and any other facts that you may wish to keep. Considerable skill is required to mount insects properly and in a lifelike position. If they are out of shape you must spread them before they dry out. Spreading consists in holding them in the proper position by means of tiny bits of glass and pins until they are dry. As moths are, as a rule, night-flying creatures the collector will either obtain them in a larval stage, or will adopt the method of sugaring. One of the most fascinating branches of nature study, a favorable locality is selected. A comparatively open space in preference to a dense growth and several trees are baited or sugared to attract the moths when in search of food. The sugar or bait is made as follows, take 4 pounds of dark brown sugar, 1 quart of molasses, a bottle of stale ale or beer, 4 ounces of Santa Cruz rum, mix and heat gradually. After it is cooked for 5 minutes allow it to cool and place in mason jars. The bait will be about the consistency of thick varnish. Just before twilight the bait should be painted on a dozen or more trees with a strip about three inches wide and three feet long. You will need a bullseye lantern or bicycle lamp and after dark, make the rounds of your bait and cautiously flash the light on the baited tree. If you see a moth feeding there, carefully bring the cyanide bottle up and drop him into it. Under no circumstances, clap the bottle over the specimen. If you do the neck of the bottle will become smeared with the bait and the moth would be dogged over and ruined. You will soon have all the specimens that you can care for at one time and will be ready to go home and take care of them. The moths are among the most beautiful creatures in nature and a reasonably complete collection of the specimens in your neighborhood will be something to be proud of. The plant and flower collector should combine his field work with a study of botany. Like most subjects in school books, botany may seem dry and uninteresting but when we learn it for some definite purpose such as knowing the wildflowers and calling them our friends. We must accept a few strange words and dried things in the school work as a little bitter that goes with a great deal of sweet. A collection of dried plants is called in herbarium. It is customary to take the entire plant as a specimen including the roots. Separate specimens of buds, leaves, flowers and fruit taken at different seasons of the year will make the collection more complete. Specimens should be first pressed or flattened between sheets of blotting paper and then mounted on sheets of white paper either by glue or by strips of gum paper. After a flower is properly identified, these sheets should be carefully numbered and labeled and a record kept in a book so that we can readily find a specimen without unnecessarily handling the specimen sheets. The sheets should be kept in heavy envelopes of manila paper and placed in a box just the size to hold them. The standard or museum size of herbarium sheets is 11 1 to x 16 1 2 inches. Specimens of seaweed or leaves can be kept in blank books. A typical label for plants or flowers should be as follows, common names Yellow Adder's Tongue Date Collected, May 16, 1908 Dogtooth Violet Botanical Name Rothronium Americanum Remarks, John Burroughs' family lily suggests that the name where found Rockaway Valley near be changed either to Beaverbrook Fawn Lily because its leaves look like a spotted fawn or Trout Lily because they always appear at trout fishing season. A boy or girl living in a section where minerals are plentiful can make a very interesting collection of stones and mineral substances, especially crystals. This should be taken up in connection with school work in chemistry and mineralogy. To determine the names of minerals is by no means as easy as that of flowers or animals. We shall need to understand something of blowpipe analysis. As a rule a high school pupil can receive a great deal of valuable instruction and aid from one of his teachers in this work. Mineral specimens should be mounted on small blocks or spindles using sealing wax to hold them in place. There are unlimited possibilities in nature for making collections. Shells, mosses, ferns, leaves, grasses, seeds, are all interesting and of value. An observation beehive with a glass front which may be darkened will show us the wonderful intelligence of these little creatures. The true spirit of nature study is to learn as much as we can of her in all of her branches. Not to make a specialty of one thing to the neglect of the rest and above all not to make work of anything. We see some new side to our most common things when we once learn to look for it. Not one person in ten thousand knows that bean vines and morning glories will twine around a pole to the right while hop vines and honeysuckle will go to the left and yet who is there who has not seen these common vines hundreds of times? No one can give as an excuse that he is too busy to study nature. The busiest men in national affairs have had time for it and surely we with our little responsibilities and cares can do so too. I once went fishing with a clergyman and I noticed that he stood for a long time looking at a pure white water lily with beautiful fragrance that grew from the blackest and most uninviting looking mud that one could find. The next Sunday he used this as an illustration for his text. How many of us ever saw the possibility of a sermon in this common everyday sight? X water life the water telescope how to manage an aquarium our insect friends and enemies the observation beehive the eggs of so many insects, toads, frogs and other interesting creatures are laid and hatched in water that a close study of pools, brooks and small bodies of water will disclose to the nature student some wonderful stories of animal life. To obtain water specimens for our collection, we shall need a net somewhat similar to the butterfly net described in the previous chapter but with a much stronger frame. One that I have used for several years was made by the village blacksmith. The ring or hoop is of quarter inch round iron. Securely fastened to a stout handle and bent to a shape as shown in the drawing. To this ring is fastened a regular landing net such as fishermen use. With an extra bag of cheesecloth to fit inside to capture insects too small to be held by the meshes of the outside net. For frogs, turtles, and minnows, the single net is all that is necessary. This device is almost strong enough to use as a shovel. It will scoop up a net full of mud without bending. This is important as muddy ditches and sluggish ponds will yield us more specimens than swiftly running brooks. In addition to the net, the collector will require a small pail to hold his trophies. A fisherman's minnow bucket is excellent for this purpose and the water can easily be freshened and the contents of the pail reached by simply lifting out the inside pail from the water, which will drain out. To study the animal life under the surface of a clear and shallow lake, A water telescope is a great aid. It is simply a wooden box a foot or so long and open at both ends. The inside should be painted black to prevent cross-reflection of light. A square of clear glass should be fitted into a one-end and putty tight to keep out the water. To use the water telescope, we simply shove the glass end underwater and look into the box. A cloth head or eyepiece to keep out the outside light will make it more effective. The best way to use a water telescope is to lie in the bottom of a boat which is drifting about and to look through the telescope over the side. As you study the marvelous animal and plant life that passes along under you like a panorama, see to it that in your excitement you do not fall overboard as a boyfriend of mine once did. The care of an aquarium is a never-ending source of interest to the nature student. If a boy is handy with tools he can build one himself. It is by no means an easy task however to make a satisfactory watertight box with glass sides. And my advice is not to attempt it glass aquarium may be bought so cheaply that it is doubtful if you can save any money by making one at home. If you care to try it, this is the way it is usually done, use a piece of seasoned white wood one one four inches thick for the bottom. If you wish your aquarium to be, say, 16 inches wide and 30 inches long, this bottom board should be 20 x 34 to give a margin at the edge. The size of a homemade aquarium can be anything that you desire. It is customary to allow a gallon of water to each 3-inch goldfish that will inhabit it. By multiplying the three dimensions, length, width and height of your box and by dividing your result, which will be in cubic inches, by 231 the number of cubic inches in a gallon you can tell how many gallons of water it will hold. Of course the rule for goldfish is not absolute. The nature student will probably have no goldfish at all. They are not nearly so interesting as our native kinds. Besides nearly all varieties of freshwater fish will either kill goldfish or if they are too large to kill will at least make life so miserable for them that to keep them together is cruelty to animals. If we keep in our aquarium the specimens that we collect in our neighborhood, beetles, newts, crawfish, snails, and tiny sunfish the number may be greatly increased. Overcrowding however is very bad. The ideal we should strive for is not how many specimens, but how many kinds we can have in our collection. The white wood board should have three or four hardwood cleats screwed to the bottom to prevent warping. The corner pieces of our glass box may either be made of sheet copper or heavy tin, or of wood. If we cannot work in metals, the wooden strips and the bottom board should have grooves plowed in them to hold the glass. All the woodwork should be given several coats of asphalt varnish and to further waterproof it and as a final coat use some kind of marine copper paint that is used to coat the bottoms of vessels. Never use the common white lead and linseed oil paint for an aquarium. You can sometimes buy aquarium cement or prepared putty at a goldfish store. This you will need to putty in the glass. If you cannot buy it, make it yourself from the asphalt varnish and whiting. Be sure that the paint and putty of an aquarium is thoroughly dry before you fill it with water. Perhaps the most satisfactory way to study fish and insect life in water is to use all glass boxes and globes. So many kinds of fish and insects are natural enemies. Even though they inhabit the same streams, that they must be kept separate anyway. To put them in the same aquarium would be like caging up two game roosters. If we were studying the development of mosquitoes, for instance, from the larvae or eggs to the fully developed insect. We should not get very far in our nature study if we put them in an aquarium with fish. A fish will soon make short work of a hundred mosquito wigglers just as a large frog will eat the fish. A snake will eat the frog and so on. Rectangular glass boxes such as are commonly used for aquaria cost less than a dollar per gallon capacity. Goldfish clothes cost about the same. White glass round aquaria are much cheaper and those made of greenish domestic glass are the cheapest of all. A glass tank holding eight gallons costing but two dollars. Any transparent vessel capable of holding water, even a mason jar will make an aquarium from which a great deal of pleasure may be derived. The old way of maintaining aquaria in good condition required a great deal of care and attention. The water had to be changed at least once a day if running water was not available and altogether they were so much trouble that as a rule owners soon tired of them. Modern aquaria are totally different. By a proper combination of fish and growing plants we can almost duplicate the conditions of nature and strike a balance so that the water need never be changed except when it becomes foul or to clean the glass. These are called, self-sustaining, aquaria and they are the only kind to have unless we can furnish running water from a public water supply. Self-sustaining aquaria are very simple and any boy or girl living near a brook can stock one at no expense whatever. The method is as follows. First cover the bottom of the aquarium with a layer of sand and pebbles to a depth of about two inches. Then plant in the bottom some aquatic or water plants that you have collected from a nearby lake. Any kind of water plants will do the kind of plants boys always call seaweed. Even a thousand miles from the sea. In collecting the plants, choose small specimens and obtain roots and all. If you can find it, the best plant is fanwort. Other good kinds are hornwort, water starwort, grass, water poppy, milfoil, willow moss, and floating plants like duckweed. Even if you do not know these by name they are probably common in your neighborhood. Fill the tank with clean water. That taken from a spring or well is better than cistern water. After two or three days, when the plants seem to be well rooted, put in your fish. You may keep your aquarium in a light place. But always keep it out of the sun in summer and away from the heat of a stove or radiator in winter. The nature student will not attempt to stock up his aquarium immediately. He should always leave room for one more fish or bug. One year I started with a lone newt and before the summer was over I had 13 sunfish, pickerel, bass, minnows, catfish, carp, trout, more newts, polywogs or tadpoles, five kinds of frogs, and eel and all sorts of bugs water beetles and insects, I soon found that one kind of insect would kill another and that sometimes my specimens would grow wings overnight and fly away, but to learn these things, even at our own disappointment is, nature study, if we knew it all in advance, we would not have much use for our experimental aquarium, always keep a few snails and tadpoles, for they are the scavengers and will eat the refuse stuff and keep the glass free from greenish scum, Boys and girls are almost sure to overfeed fish. This is a great mistake. The best standard feed is dried ants eggs that can be bought for a few cents a box at any bird and fish store. Do not feed pieces of bread and meat. Study what their natural food is and if possible get that for them. If your fish seem sickly, give them a 5 minute bath in salt water every day for a week. The kind of an aquarium above described is intended to fill an entirely different purpose from the usual goldfish globe. In your excursions you will find all sorts of queer-looking eggs and specimens. Some of the eggs are so tiny that they look almost like black or white dust on the water. Another kind will be a mass like a jellyfish with brown dots in it. Still others will be fastened in masses to the underside of a leaf in the water or perhaps on the bottom. What are they? That is just the question and that is why you will carefully collect them and take them home to await developments. Always keep an accurate notebook with dates and facts. Also keep a close watch on your specimens, sometimes they will hatch and be eaten by the other bugs before you could read this chapter, a nature student will need some part of the house that he may call his very own, here he can keep his specimens, his aquarium, his herbarium and what not, around the wall he can hang the twigs with their cocoons, oak calls, last year's wasp and bird nests and other treasures. He should also have a work table that a little glue or ink will not injure and a carpet that has no further use in the household. Usually one corner of the attic or cellar is just the place. See to it that you do not make other people uncomfortable in the pursuit of your hobby. You will find that almost everyone is afraid of bugs and toads and that most people live in a world full of wonderful things and only see a little beyond the end of their noses. There is a very practical side to nature study and the principal way that we can make it really pay is to know our friends from our enemies in the animal and insect world. There are insects that chew, suck and bore to ruin our orchards and grain crops. They are our enemies. If we know their life story, where they hide and how they breed, we can fight them better. For every dollar's worth of crops that a farmer grows, it is estimated that his insect enemies eat another dollar's worth. A little bug called the San Jose scale has nearly ruined the orchards of some of the eastern states. To fight him, We must know how he lives. That is nature study. By study we learn that the hop toad is our best garden friend. He will spend the whole night watching for the cutworms that are after our tomato plants. When we see a woodpecker industriously pecking at the bark of our apple trees. We know that he is after the larvae of the terrible cobbling moth and we call him our friend. After we learn that a ladybug lives almost entirely on plant lice and scale insects. We never kill one again except perhaps to place a specimen in our collection. Naturalists say that without ladybugs, our orchards would soon be entirely killed off. The dragonfly or mosquito hawk as well as water tigers, water striders.